lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would speak words of truth and wisdom we need to hear through your word. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, This week and next, we're going to be looking at Psalm 91 in this service of preaching and prayer. Uh, Psalm 91 is, is certainly one of my favorites. And I think it's a very fitting psalm for this situation we find ourselves in. Psalm 91 is written for people who are in trouble. It's written for people who are in danger in some kind of way. Now, if you don't have any trouble, uh, if you don't have any problems, if you don't have any struggles, or uh, if you're not in any danger in any kind of way whatsoever, uh, I suppose this psalm isn't for you. Uh, But my guess is that uh, all of us have some troubles, at least right about now. Uh, It's certainly troubling that we can't meet together for public worship. That's a great trouble and a trial in itself. Uh, Psalm 91 even mentions uh, the plague as one of the things that can trouble us. So, uh, again, I think it is especially fitting for our situation. In times like this, the illusion that we ever had control over our lives is shattered. It's not that we have lost control, it's that we never really had it. We might have think we had control, but now we realize we never did. Uh, In times like this, we are looking for something solid. We're looking for solid ground, something solid we can hold on to. And this psalm shows us the only solid thing there is, the only solid thing we're going to find is God himself. We all want something we can count on. We want a sure thing. Okay, Psalm 91 shows us the only thing you can count on is Christ. The only sure thing in the whole universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. His love, his faithfulness, his forgiveness. Psalm 91 teaches us this in such a profound way. Uh, Most likely this psalm was written by Moses. It is paired with Psalm 90, which was uh, by Moses. We saw that last week. It tells us in the title that it is by Moses. The Jewish tradition said that uh, if there's no um, author attributed uh, before the psalm, then it must have been written by the psalm that was previously attributed to an author, and that would make this uh, a psalm of Moses, and that seems very, very likely to me. That's the Jewish tradition. Uh, And it seems to fit. Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 really do go together. Psalm 90, as we saw last time, describes Israel in the wilderness uh, as that unfaithful generation passes away. And Moses uses those bodies that are being scattered across the wilderness to teach the rising generation wisdom. Wisdom that comes from numbering our days aright. Psalm 91 continues in this story of Israel. Moses is now preparing the Israelites for the conquest of the promised land, for conquering the land of promise. And he is pointing ahead to the battles and the trials and the challenges that they're going to face. It's interesting, too, that uh, Psalm 90 and 91 echo other uh, writings of Moses, Deuteronomy in particular. Psalm 90 especially echoes Deuteronomy 20, uh, 33, 
Uh, Psalm 91 especially echoes Deuteronomy 32, uh, which really gives us the final words of Moses, the final song of Moses. Psalm 91, uh, like Psalm 90, begins with a reference to God as the dwelling place of his people. Verse 1, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Beautiful language, but what's being talked about here? What is the secret place Moses is referring to? I think initially it must have referred to the glory cloud. You know, the glory cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. The glory cloud led them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea and then uh, led them in the wilderness to the promised land. That glory cloud was a kind of mobile chariot throne for God. And we find in Scripture that glory cloud was filled with cherubim, with angels, with wings who are uh, in this cloud surrounding the throne of God. Uh, But later, it seems, this secret place, this secret dwelling place of God, comes to be identified with the most holy place in the tabernacle. This is the place where God dwells in the midst of his people, in the most holy place of the tabernacle, where God dwells between or above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. They are above the mercy seat. Now, think about that. Think about that secret place, if this is the most holy place. Normally, no one but the high priest had access to this secret place, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's what the law of Moses teaches. But Moses here is suggesting that in some sense, God's people have access to this most holy place, this secret place. So what is Moses talking about here? He could be talking about himself. After all, Moses did have access to the glory cloud. Moses got to go up on Mount Sinai into the glory cloud. That's where he received the Ten Commandments. He got to meet God in a sort of face-to-face way. His dwelling was with the Most High God. Or it could be prophetic. It could be that Moses is looking ahead to the New Covenant, to our day. Think about what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The centurion in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15, sees this happen. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10 uh, makes a big deal out of this. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, it's as if God reached down from heaven and tore that veil in two to show now the secret place has been opened up. Now the most holy place has been opened up to God's people. So we now have access to the very throne room of God. We can come into God's presence. We can dwell in the secret place. We have access to the holy of holies in Christ Jesus. Through Christ our King and our great high priest, we can enter into the true sanctuary. And again, Hebrews and other places in the New Testament scriptures make a big deal out of this. This access we've been granted that was promised in the Old Covenant, foreshadowed there, but not granted fully until Jesus, uh, until his death on the cross. Now also think about what was in the secret place. The secret place was a kind of of treasury uh, where God kept his gifts, like a a safe that was locked up where God kept uh, the most precious gifts he has for humanity. The Ten Commandments were kept there. Aaron's staff that blossomed was kept there. Uh, Some of the manna was kept there, the manna that fell from heaven. And these items represent wisdom, glory, and life. The very things we most need. These gifts belong to those who have access to the secret place. This is what God promises to give to those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High God. To have access means we have these gifts. We have this nearness to God. 
And of course, what this means then becomes clearer in the rest of the psalm. What all of this does for us becomes clearer in the rest of the psalm. Verse 2, Moses says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. What is a refuge? Think about these images that are used here. What is a refuge? A a refuge is a place of safety. It's a place of rest. It is a place of protection. Who needs a refuge? Refugees, right? Refugees need a refuge. Refugees are people on the run, people who have had something terrible or traumatic happen to them who are seeking a place of security. They're seeking a home where they can dwell, a place where they'll find safety. Moses says, God is your refuge. He is your place of safety. He is your hiding place. says also here, God is our fortress. Think about a fortress. A fortress is used in warfare. Who is inside a fortress? Soldiers. A fortress is used in warfare to keep the enemy out. It's where the soldiers go to seek protection from the enemy. So you can think of a fortress as as defensive, certainly, but it's also a place from which you can launch an offensive attack. A fortress is used in warfare. Moses says, God is our mighty fortress. Uh, Later in this psalm, these images are going to be unpacked in a greater way. Just glance ahead and see at how these images uh, are are, uh, used in the rest of the psalm. God is our fortress, so he provides us with safety in the midst of the battle. Well, the rest of the psalm, this is really a battle psalm. It goes on to describe our warfare, the battles that God calls us to fight. Uh, We see in verse 5 that God provides us with armor. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Now, this might be talking about physical warfare. Certainly, uh, Israel fought many physical battles. Moses was preparing them for a very physical battle against the Canaanites. Israel fought a lot of physical battles in God's name. But it seems something else uh, is going on here. If truth is your shield and your buckler, then it would seem this is a different kind of armor for a different kind of warfare. Indeed, it seems this would be fitting for the kind of warfare that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, where he also talks about this kind of armor. And so we might say that what Moses is really describing here is spiritual warfare. Verse 7, he says, 10,000, a thousand may fall at your your, your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near to you. See here, safety and security on the field of battle are promised. Now, this does not mean that we will never encounter any kind of physical harm or suffering. In fact, really, and I'll talk about this more next week, but ultimately this psalm is about Jesus. Ultimately, every line of this psalm finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This psalm is ultimately about him. He is the one who dwells in the secret place of the Most High God, who seeks refuge in the Lord, who fights uh, the Lord's battles, who puts on the, 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 the shield of truth and the buckler of truth in order to fight his battles. He is the one who trusts in the Lord in this way. And so think about Jesus when he went into battle. What happened? His disciples on his left and right fell away. Now, it wasn't 1,000 or 10,000. Maybe it was just 12. But they fell away. They weren't there with him in his moment of great trial. Satan actually quotes this psalm to Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. In fact, this is the only passage of Scripture that Satan quotes in the whole Bible. The only time we find Satan quoting Scripture comes from Psalm 91. And there Satan tempts Jesus to throw himself off of the pinnacle of the temple. He takes Jesus to that most high place 
the temple, that, that secret dwelling place of God, as it were, and he says, throw yourself down, and he uses the words of Psalm 91. He asks, won't the Lord take care of you? Doesn't Psalm 91 say he will give his angels charge over you so that you will not dash your foot against a stone? See, Satan wants Jesus to seek the promise apart from faith. He wants Jesus to presume upon the promise, to seek what is promised apart from obedience to the promiser, to test God in this way. And of course, Jesus refuses. He stands firm. He quotes from Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This would be um, Satan's quoting scripture, but he's misapplying scripture. And so Jesus doesn't fall for it. He doesn't fall for that temptation. And of course, in this, Jesus helps us understand how the psalm works. It doesn't mean we're not going to face any harm or suffering. Jesus himself was crucified, and this psalm is about him. But in all of this, Jesus is a model for us. We see Jesus in this psalm, so we must learn to see ourselves in this psalm as well. See, the psalmist is giving us a variety of images for God and also a variety of images for himself. Images in which we can see ourselves. God here is both a refuge and a fortress. The psalmist is both a refugee and a soldier on the field of battle. Verses 3 and 4, he adds another array of images here. And I think these are, are, are really, really helpful to us. Moses writes, Surely the Lord shall deliver you from the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Now think about this, what's being said here. What is a fowler? A fowler is one who hunts birds. It's a bird catcher. And so if the Lord delivers us from the hand of the fowler, how is the psalmist describing himself? How does he see himself? He sees himself as a bird. Indeed, he sees himself as a bird who is being hunted. And look at how he describes the safety that he finds. Verse 4. He, that is the Lord, shall cover you with his feathers under his wings. You shall take refuge. How is the Lord described here? It looks to me as if the Lord's being described as a mother bird. And so the picture is of the psalmist as a little baby bird, like a little chick, seeking safety under the wings of its mother. Think about Jesus in Matthew 23 saying how he longed to gather up the children of Jerusalem the way a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's what Jesus wanted to do with Jerusalem. God's like a mother bird. We're like little baby chicks. And the only place we can find shelter is under God's wings. Jesus is the wings of God. To seek shelter under God's wings is to seek refuge in Jesus. That's the picture here. In fact, I think this is really tapping into a much larger theme of bird imagery that is used for God and his people throughout the scriptures. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth, we find the Holy Spirit of God, the, the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That word that describes the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of the earth is uh, a word that can also be used to describe a bird in flight. It's as if the Spirit was fluttering bird-like over the waters. The Spirit was fluttering its wings over the waters. Just as the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove will hover over the floodwaters in Noah's day, and then again the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove hovering over the waters of the Jordan when Jesus is baptized, 
So it was in the beginning, the Holy Spirit fluttering over the watery earth. The Holy Spirit is God with wings. To seek shelter under the wings of God is to seek shelter in the Holy Spirit. But there's more here. We seek uh, shelter under God's wings. And when we do so, when we seek shelter under God's wings, we find he delivers us from our enemies. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses describes the Exodus in this way. He says it's as if the Israelites were carried out of Egypt on eagles' wings. The Lord says he found Israel in a desert land, that would be Egypt, and he encircled them as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, and carrying them on its wings. That's Deuteronomy 32. In uh, Exodus 19, verse 4, the Lord says to the Israelites, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you're familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, you know this eagle imagery, eagles bringing salvation. That, that's, a, that's a picture that comes straight out of Scripture. The Lord is like an eagle. We take shelter under his wings. He carries us on his wings to safety. Perhaps the clearest use of this imagery in Scripture is found in Ruth chapter 2. Boaz says to Ruth, remember Ruth has come from Moab to Israel to take care of her widowed mother-in-law. So you've got two widows uh, who are trying to make their way in the land of Israel now. And when Boaz sees Ruth caring for her mother-in-law and gleaning in his field, he says, May the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Later in chapter 3, Ruth makes a request to Boaz, spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. And we find in Ezekiel 16, God says he spread his wing over his people. He spread his wing over Israel. And clearly in the context there, it refers to making a covenant with Israel, a kind of entering into a kind of marriage relationship with Israel. That's what Ruth wanted from Boaz, is a covenant. To take shelter under the wings of the Lord is to be in covenant with him. And what do we find under the Lord's wings? Malachi 4.2 tells us the son of righteousness, that's the Messiah obviously, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. We find healing, we find safety, we find protection. Now we're going to look at the rest of this psalm next week. Uh, but there is plenty just in what we have looked at uh, in, in, in this so far today to help us in our present situation. And I want to point you to some ways in which this psalm can help us personally with where we are and how it can challenge us culturally. You know, I know at a personal level there is a lot of frustration. There is a lot of anger at what this pandemic is taking from us. There's also a lot of anxiety. Uh, there is a tendency to despair. Nothing is worse than hopelessness. That feeling that no matter what you do, you are at a dead end in life, that your life is basically over. Nothing is worse than that. Nothing is worse than living in the grip of anxiety and fear. Uh, and this is sad, but in Tennessee last week, more people died of, of, of suicide than of COVID, than of coronavirus. And when the governor of Tennessee was told that, I, I just saw this article today, when the governor of Tennessee was told this, uh, he said that number, so the number of suicides, says that number is completely shocking and makes me wonder if what we are doing now really is the best approach. 
Said we have to determine how we can respond to COVID-19 in a way that keeps our economy intact, keeps people employed, and empowers them with a feeling of hope and optimism, not desperation and despair. We need hope. We need hope. We, but somehow we have to overcome any desperation, any despair. We need a feeling of hope. Uh, I saw another stat where calls to suicide hotlines were up 300% uh, in the last couple weeks. People are panicking. People are despairing. People feel hopeless. If your hope rests in having good health or in a good economy or in a good job or in having nice things or even in just in having a life of ease and comfort in general, if that's where your hope is, your hope is going to falter. Because all of those things are too fragile to hold up your hope. The only anti-fragile hope you can have is hope in Christ. Because, see, all those other hopes, when something happens, those hopes are dashed. But hope in Christ doesn't waver in times of trial. It actually grows stronger. Your hope in Christ can actually be strengthened in a time of suffering and trial. I think this virus may very likely end up taking a greater toll on our nation's mental health than our physical health. Although the reality is the two are related. When you are anxious, it actually compromises you physically, making you more likely to get sick. So think about this. Anxiety over your health actually hurts your health. If you're anxious over getting sick, you're more likely to get sick. Now here's the thing. Just hearing that will make some people more anxious. You get anxious about your anxiety. So what do you do about this anxiety? Well, you deal with it the same way you deal with hopelessness. Psalm 91 shows you what to do with your anxiety. You seek shelter under the Lord's wings. You make him your refuge and your fortress. You take up his shield of truth and the buckler of truth. You know he's going to take care of you. You trust in him to take care of you. There's nothing more sure than that. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He invites you to take shelter, to take refuge under his wings. He'll protect you. He'll deliver you. Stonewall Jackson, good Presbyterian that he was, said, My faith leads me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. Or to think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about worry. If God looks after sparrows and lilies, he certainly can look after us. He's certainly going to look after us because we're of much greater worth to God than the sparrows and the lilies. The missionary Henry Martin, uh, who faced a number of dangerous situations in his ministry, said, if God has work for me to do, I cannot die. If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. Those words are so comforting because they say, look, you are immortal. You are invincible until God's work for you is done. If God has decreed to kill you with coronavirus, nothing can stop it. And if he hasn't decreed for you to die this way, nothing can make it happen. Now, that doesn't lead us to some kind of fatalism. We ought to act in wisdom, clearly. We don't want to be presumptuous. That's the very thing that Satan tried to get Jesus to do, is be presumptuous. We shouldn't presume upon God's protection. We should be wise. But you need to know, you are immortal until the moment God has planned for you to die. You are invincible until that moment when God says, your work is done, according to his eternal plan. God is sovereign over our lives. The pandemic of 2020 is unfolding exactly according to God's plan. Students, your school year is unfolding exactly according to God's plan. 
your investment portfolio is unfolding or crashing, as the case may be, exactly according to God's plan. The trips you had scheduled for this year will happen or not happen exactly according to God's plan. Public worship is canceled exactly according to God's plan. Your job situation is unfolding exactly according to God's plan. See, none of those things can be your refuge, your job, your money, your plans. None of those things can be your refuge. Psalm 91 shows us God alone must be our refuge. God alone is stable. God's the only stable thing there is in the universe. Anxiety and despair are among our biggest enemies. This psalm shows us how to slay them, how to wage war on our anxiety and despair, because it says to each one of us, you dwell in God. Nothing can ultimately harm you. You have taken refuge under God's wings. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Make Psalm 91 your pandemic psalm. Make it your psalm to live by. God does not promise to keep troubles from happening to us, but God does promise to be with us in the midst of those troubles. And that's what matters. Now, one more thing here really quickly. Think about this. It may be that shutting down our culture and our economy, that in doing these things, God is providing us with an opportunity to do battle, not only with idols in our own lives, but in our culture. Idols that grip our culture. Maybe God is using this tiny little virus to topple the biggest idols in our culture. So consider these events and the impact they're having on our culture. Obviously, we have no divinely inspired interpretation of what this pandemic means. We don't have an inspired prophet to tell us what it means. But Scripture gives us all kinds of guidelines here. Scripture can help us understand how to interpret this event and how God uses events like this to humble cultures to sift and judge nations. And yes, God does judge nations. Even in history, God judges nations. The rising and falling of kingdoms and empires is always in his hands. And we should be real careful about connecting any particular event of suffering with any particular sin. But I do think that this psalm gives us an opportunity to interpret these current events uh, and, and, and to say something about what God might be doing in our midst. Psalm 91 identifies the plague as one enemy that God will ultimately deliver us from. So again, it's not anything we have to fear. Whether God delivers us now or in the resurrection, God will deliver us from this enemy of the plague and every other enemy. But think for just a minute about all the viruses taken away from us in terms of our culture. Trillions of dollars of wealth in the stock market gone. Millions of jobs uh, gone. And job security gone for many, many more. Sports gone, March Madness gone, the NBA gone, MLB gone, uh, all these, you know, maybe more to come, all these things gone. Many of the very things that people in our culture are most likely to idolize have been taken from us. Maybe this is God's way of humbling our idols, of overthrowing them, of getting us to think whether or not these are really idols we want to rely on. Here's another way to look at it. Maybe God is giving us exactly what we've wanted, but he's doing so in doses that show us how wrong our desires have been. Think about a time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they were grumbling, wanting to go back to Egypt because, hey, at least we had meat in Egypt. And now we've just got this this bread, this manna, we don't have any meat. And God says, fine, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And so he causes quail 
to come upon them, and, and, and they get so much quail that it's coming out of their nostrils. Just a, It's a disgusting picture. But they wanted quail, so God gives them quail, and, it, and it's coming out of their noses. Listen to Sam Alberry. Uh, he said something really profound about our situation. Alberry says, We have prioritized the individual over the community, the material over the re- relational, the virtual over the physical, and so now we have it. We have what we wanted. We have more of what we wanted than we can manage. It's like it's coming out of our nostrils. He says, we have been playing up the virtue of self-expression. So let's be honest. Several days into lockdown, is self-expression still the highest good? Do the people we live with long that we express ourselves more? And now that we see we're forced to spend so much time with our actual self, are we so confident of its essential goodness? Are we just stoked to have so much undistracted time, undistracted time with it? Or might we be finding ourselves wearying? Maybe you do you isn't the answer we thought it was. Someone once said, life is basically a long, bad date with yourself. Many of us are being confronted with the reality of who we really are, and it can be exhausting. But Jesus says to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's our hope. That's our hope. And we've got to show that hope to our culture. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Moses says to us, come unto the Lord, and he will give you refuge. He will give you shelter. You know, I started off saying the secret place is the glory cloud. The secret place Moses talks about is the most holy place. I think that's true in a sense, but really in a more ultimate sense, Jesus himself is the secret place. And we are in him. And we dwell in him. And when we dwell in him, we also dwell in the Father. And when we dwell in Jesus, when he is our resting place, our hiding place, we are dwelling in the shadow of the Most High God. And that's our hope. That's what takes all our fears and anxieties away. That's what shows all our idols to be the weak and worthless gods that they are. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this psalm, a psalm of hope a psalm of victory, a psalm that shows us how to fight the battles you have called us to fight, the battles you want us to fight. Help us to be faithful on the field of battle, knowing that you are our fortress. This we pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now confess our faith together using the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, 